You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, as you're turning there, next Sunday is uh, Missions Sunday, and uh, we will be having uh, Zane Pratt, who is with the International Mission Board, uh, with us to challenge us toward a greater commitment to missions, and I hope that you'll make plans to be here. In your bulletin, there's an insert that tells of the activities for the day, including some uh, Sunday school class changes. Uh, we'll have some other missionaries here with us as well that'll be in the Sunday school classes, and uh, also a Sunday evening event uh, as well. And so take a look at that, and I hope that you'll make every effort uh, to be here uh, next Sunday. Well, we turn our attention this morning to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 20 this morning. Paul is ramping up his case that uh, all people are under sin, uh, facing the, the wrath of God and in need of a, of a Savior. And so we read these words uh, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would please help us now as we have worshipped you through singing and praying, Lord, that we would continue worshipping you by being attentive to your word, what you have to say to us. And so give us ears to hear. And by your spirit, help us to understand these things. And I pray that you would use me as your servant today. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to begin with, we need to uh, look at an apparent problem here in verse 9 as compared to verses 1 and 2. If you uh, remember, I have to remind myself what I preached last week, but uh, if you can remember by chance uh, that we looked at uh, Romans 3 verses 1 and 2 where Paul says, what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? He says, much in every way. And then here in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? And he says, no, not at all. Uh, so which is it, Paul? Well, if you, if you recall from last week, he, Paul was making the point that there was indeed an advantage of being 
uh, a Jew, or we would apply this today, of being raised in the church or raised in a Christian home or you went to a Christian school, that you had the benefit of, of parents who taught you the, the scriptures. Those advantages do not save you, but they are advantages. And uh, the point Paul is making here in verse 9 is he says, we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Those advantages do not save because you're still under sin. This is really an important text about our worldview, something that shapes our perspective, our view, our lens of how we look at things in, in life. The late Charles Colson, in his book, How Then Shall We Live?, says that there are two opposite worldviews that are used today to try to explain uh, evil in our, in our world. The first is what we might call the utopian view. The utopian view. And this view asserts basically that, that humans are intrinsically good. That you're good from the beginning. That we're in fact evolving and we're evolving into perfection. Uh, and under the right social conditions, that people's good nature is going to emerge People are not evil, they say. Evil must be the product of the environment, of ignorance, poverty, uh, un undesirable social conditions, etc. And if we could just get rid of these social conditions, we can be, man can achieve his full goodness. If we can get rid of crime, if we can get rid of guns and drugs and racism and poverty and dysfunctional families and the list we could continue going on, then we'll have a good society, we'll have utopia. And there's been a really great, uh, there's been a great shift in our society over the last century or so toward this, this view, this utopian view. It's, it's influenced the world's attitudes and uh, the world's uh, really mindset toward it, lots of things, education, the economy, truth, uh, even parenting. This is back in the uh, 1940s that Dr. Benjamin Spock wrote a book about parenting. And it was kind of based on the utopian view because he encouraged parents to reject the idea that kids have a sinful nature. That they're, remember, they're intrinsically good. And he said, we need to understand that children are evolving. And so he recommended that when, say, a school-aged child stole something, that his parents uh, might consider whether the child needed more approval at home. Or maybe they needed a raise in their allowance, which led to the, the stealing. Uh, and so for years, the experts have been telling us that if, 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 to ensure that a healthy child, you need to not, you don't need to teach them right and wrong. You need to let them discover their own values and their own paths in life. And I think we're seeing the results of that today. And they're not very good. The other view, though, a worldview, is what the Bible teaches and what theologians call original sin. And that is in Genesis 1 and 2, the, we find a, a perfect world that is created by a perfect God. It is brimming of life, full of life, and Adam and Eve are commanded to continue in this delight, to continue walking with God and tending the creation and being fruitful and multiplying. But as soon as they determine that they're going to serve themselves rather than God, as soon as they abandon living for and enjoying God as their highest good, the world was broken. And the Bible teaches that when Adam fell, 
All of humanity fell with him. Romans 5, 12, we'll get there eventually. But everyone who's been born since Adam is born under sin. That is, they are born with the guilt of Adam's sin upon them. They have his sinful nature running through their blood. Everyone. So that all are born under sin, rightly facing the judgment of God and desperately needing the salvation that only God can provide. This is the worldview. This is what Paul has been laboring to argue here in Romans chapters 1 through 3. And now we come to his closing argument, if you will. And it's, it's quite an argument. It's really a crescendo of everything that he's been saying. He drives home the truth about man's sinful condition. I want you to notice four characteristics as we think about structuring this passage. First of all, Paul teaches about the captive power of sin. The captive power of sin. Verse 9, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What does it mean to be under sin? To be under sin means to be held captive by the power of sin. It means that we are held captive by it. We are enslaved by sin. We are dominated by sin. There is an inherited depravity in all people, so much so that we are consumed with sin and it's not really possible for us to stop sinning. Because of this sinful nature. We think back through Paul's argument here. He's been saying this in many different ways. Why does Paul say, for example, in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, that people are suppressing the truth about God by their wickedness? It is because they are under sin. Why do people not only do evil but approve of evildoers? Romans chapter 2 verse 1. It is because they are under sin. Why do religious people sit in judgment on evildoers and then turn around and do evil themselves? It's because they are under the captive power of sin. Jesus taught this to us in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. It says that Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free is a great word. And freedom is one of the great words that describes our salvation. To be saved is to be set free by Jesus Christ. And you remember uh, when they talked about Jesus describing his ministry, uh, he, he talked about it as proclaiming liberty to the captives. Freedom. You might say, well, I didn't know I was uh, enslaved. That's exactly what the folks said to Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? The answer shows that the greatest bondage is that which we are not aware of, perhaps as sinners. That we are enslaved and captivated. John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. A slave to sin. Arthur Pink writes this, The condition of the natural man is far, far worse than he imagines. 
Man is a fallen creature, totally depraved, with no soundness in him from the sole of his foot even into the head. He's completely under the dominion of sin, a bond slave to divers lusts so that he cannot cease from sin. Lloyd-Jones added this, the world is in unutterable slavery. Oh, the power of darkness, he wrote. Why do we keep on doing things that we know are wrong? Why do we do things that we know hurt us? Why do we do these things though we know something of their consequences? And the answer is the ruling power of sin. Everyone, Jesus says, who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the world loves to think that they are free. That man has a free will, at least in the sense of that he is, man is completely neutral. That he's neutral and that he can choose right and wrong. But Jesus teaches something far different. That we are enslaved to sin so that we can do no other apart from him. This is exactly what Paul is saying and what he means when he says we are under sin. We're enslaved by the captive power of it. Notice, secondly, the universal nature of sin. And we glimpsed it here in verse 9, for we have already charged, he says, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. But he makes it even clear in verse 10, as it is written, he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now you'll notice perhaps in your Bible those verses are, are maybe offset in some way. Uh, verses 10 through 18. That is because in this section Paul is sharing a litany of Old Testament verses with us. And I think he does so in part because he is reminding us again that this is not his opinion uh, this is, these are not his ideas. This is not his verdict about mankind. This is God's verdict about man. As Lawson notes, this is God's prosecution against mankind. This is Paul bringing witness after witness from the Word of God that testifies to the reality of, that is in our lives, our sinfulness. If you look in your cross-references, if you have that in your Bible, you can see that he cites from many places, including Psalm 14, 1 through 3, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, Psalm 5, 9, and many others that are there. Each phrase is quoted from an Old Testament book. But notice the emphasis on the universal nature of sin. Notice it. None is righteous. No one not one, he says in verse 10. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks God. Verse 12, all have turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. Could God's word be any more clear, church? When we think about people, we may come up with all kinds of different categories for people. In fact, we do this often in our human nature. We might say, well, so-and-so was a really good man. You know, or so-and-so is a really fine woman. Or so-and-so is a really nice person. We have all these different categories. But the Bible knows of no such categories. And it says, no one is righteous. When it comes to mankind defining his relationship, his standing with God, here's where it all begins. This is the basic, this is the foundation. There is no one righteous before God. 
Sin is universal. And this is without exception. Since the fall of mankind in Genesis 3, there has never been an exception except Jesus uh, himself. The captive power of sin is universal. No one understands, he says. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Left to ourselves, we would never seek after God because of the very nature, our very sinful nature, we are opposed to God from the very beginning. It's not that man is neutral before God. He is opposed to God. He's under the power and the penalty of sin. The best man, the greatest thinkers, the the smartest. There's never been one who could stand up to the test of God. Paul will say in verse 23, a verse we've, many of us have committed to memory, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it gets worse. Notice thirdly, the terrible character of sin. In verses 13 through 18, Paul continues hammering the point home and describing the the character of our sin. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The, The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. This is an incredible description of the radical corruption of sin in our lives. And again, these verses are all taken from the Old Testament. This is not Paul's assessment. This is God's assessment. As Lawson writes, from the top of our head to the bottom of our feet, every inch and every ounce of us has become poisoned with the deadly venom of sin. That's the picture in these verses. Notice the deliberate listing of of different body parts. Verse 13, the throat and tongue are mentioned. Verse 14, the mouth. Verse 15, the feet. Uh, Verse 18, the eyes. Sin affects every part of our humanness, every faculty, every function, including our mind, our emotions, our conscience, our will. This is what theologians sometimes call the doctrine of total depravity. It does not mean that every person is as bad as they could be. I would think we would discern that there is a difference between a a serial killer or some evil dictator who has a far greater expression of evil in their lives than perhaps your unsaved neighbor or your unsaved grandmother. But what it does mean is that the sinful nature that has been passed on from Adam to you has corrupted the totality of your being. It's touched every part of your life and my life. No part is left unaffected we've already seen how sin darkens the mind and the heart and the will from Romans chapter 1 but now Paul expands this quoting Psalm 5 verse 9 and verse 13 he says their throat is an open grave think of a grave that is being opened after several days of decay that is set in I thought about the story of Lazarus when Martha would say to Jesus 
uh, when he commanded that her brother Lazarus's tomb be opened after a week, she said, Lord, he, he stinketh. This is the picture of, of mankind, a man under sin. His throat, he says, is an open grave. Think of that. Verse 13, they use their tongues to deceive, full of flattery and, and pretense and grumbling and gossiping. The stuff that comes out of our mouth. Verse 13, the venom, he calls it venom of asp that is under their lips from Psalm 143, like a poisonous snake. From Psalm 10, 7, in verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We think of uh, James in James chapter 3 when he says that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. And he says it's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we, our Lord and Father, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And you remember, too, what Jesus taught, that what comes out of the mouth only reveals what is in the heart. And so think about those words and what it says about you, what's in you. Verse 15, Paul begins to describe sin and deeds. He says their feet are swift to shed blood from Isaiah 59, verses 7 and 8. He's not saying there that everyone is a murderer, but he's, he is saying there about the destructiveness of, of sin. It is why there's so much brokenness in our world today. We are swift to destroy. No wonder he says in verse 16, and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And then perhaps summing it all at verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So you remember chapter 1 verse 18 of Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But here's the issue, there's no fear of God in light of that truth. The point Paul is making here is, is that apart from the saving righteousness of God, this is who we are. There's only self-seeking hearts. There's only bitter tongues. There's only strife and rebellion and ruin and misery. Man has been radically corrupted by sin. Now, maybe there would be someone that would say today and, and say, you know, now don't you think, Pastor, this is a bit much, I mean... Maybe this was for literary effect. You know, maybe, surely we're not as bad apart from, from Christ as he says that we are. Maybe there would be someone else who would say, well, again, you know, this reminds me of why I don't like the Apostle Paul. And rather, I would like to not believe what Paul says, but, you know, I'm just going to stick with Jesus because Jesus loves everybody, right? You know I'm setting you up again. If you think Paul is too strict in his assessment of sin, have you considered what Jesus said about the character of sin? Jesus described man as salt that had lost its savor, Matthew 5, 13. He described us as a corrupt tree which is bound to produce corrupt fruit, Matthew 7, 7. In Luke 11, he talked of man being evil. He said, if you then who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? 11, Luke eleven thirteen. 
Matthew 12, verse 39, as he was teaching, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he talked about an evil and perverse generation. Verse 45, a wicked generation. He taught in Matthew 15, 19, 20, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, he says. Matthew 19, 18, he spoke of marriage and and divorce, and he talked about the hardness of heart. And Mark 10, 18, when speaking to the rich young ruler, Jesus reminded him, no one is good except God alone. Jesus called the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees, who were the most moral, upstanding people of his time. You know what he called them? He called them wicked servants. In John's gospel, Jesus described the heart of men like this. John 5.40, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. John 5.42, you do not have the love of God within you. John 5.43, you do not receive me. John 5.47, you do not believe my words. John 7.7, your works are evil. John 7.19, none of you keeps the law. John 8.21, you will die in your sin. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. I mean, we could go on and on, but but the point here, Paul's words in Romans seem a bit mild by comparison to Jesus. But the truth is, they are not mild. They are devastating, and they are true. True. And think of the Jews again in Paul's day who would have been arguing that they are somehow exempt from the judgment of God because they possess these religious privileges. They possess the law of God. And Paul says, no, it's the very law of God that condemns you before him. It condemns us all before God. Which leads us finally to the guilty verdict of sin in verses 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now notice here, as we wrap up this passage, Paul has two goals in mind as he's been in this section of Romans 1.18 all the way to here. The first goal is this, so that every mouth may be stopped. That's his first goal. The law is important because he says, Paul says, it's going to close every mouth on judgment day. There will be no excuses before God. Everyone will be speechless because of the irrefutable indictment that the law brings. And and Paul, in fact, is seeking us to to bring us to this place of silence now before God. He wants us to understand that we are totally depraved before a holy God with no objection. We stand guilty before him. So in the way of application, I, I would ask you these questions. Have you stopped speaking? Have you been silenced in the presence of God? Or are you still pushing back? Are you still pushing back and saying, but you know, Paul, I've done, I, I've done this good thing over here and I've got this going for me. 
Are, are you still making those? Ex- because if you're saying those things, then you've missed the scripture and you've missed the gospel. In, in light of the, these truths about your sinfulness, if you are still saying, but, but you've missed it. Until we become like Job, you remember, in the presence of God, Job 40, verse 4, he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. It is to say that all of these things that the Bible says about me and my sinfulness is true. I have no defense. Notice the second goal of Paul. He says that the whole world may be held accountable to God. The word accountable means guilty. It means being liable before God, exposed to the judgment of God. There's no, you have no leg to stand on here. You're guilty. We're guilty. And of all the texts in the Bible that clearly states that you cannot work your way out of this judgment, verse 20 may be the clearest one when he says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. No human being will be saved by his own good works, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. No human being will be saved. The law only informs us that we're sinners. It cannot save us because we cannot keep it. And we have not kept it. So here's the verdict. It's the verdict of all of humankind. We are all guilty. We are all facing judgment. And we cannot save ourselves. How's that a message for good news today? And yet I tell you that if you haven't arrived at this point, you haven't understood the good news. Because it's only here, at this place, that you can begin to understand why Paul would describe the gospel in Romans 1.16 as the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. The power of God. Here's the reason, because it's only the power of God that can save you from the mess that you are in. It takes a power of God to do that. Not a power of you. Not you walking an aisle or raising your hand or doing something like that. It takes the power of God To set you free from the captive power of sin. That's what Jesus says. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It takes a divine power to redeem you. It takes a divine power to cover your sins, to forgive you, to give you life. Friend, you do not need to be improved today. You need to be reborn today. You are not just sick and ailing. You are dead. You need to be raised from the dead spiritually. That's what salvation is. Paul put it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2.1 But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. 
By grace you have been saved. God has to raise us from the dead spiritually in order to save us. And the power of God, he says, for salvation to everyone who believes. Believes in what? Believes in who? Believes on Jesus. Believes on the one who took our sins on himself. Who died the death that we deserved and rose again so that we could have eternal life. The grace of God by grace through faith is our only hope that he would make us alive. Have you experienced the saving power of God in your life? Paul will say later, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe on your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we thank you. These are hard words. But Lord, they are true words. And as our brothers from the Tone Master reminded us, they are still true today. Your word has not changed. This verdict has not changed. We have not evolved so that we are somehow better than we were. No, we are lost in our sins. But thank you that you made a way by grace through faith in your son Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would work in all of our hearts reminding us of these things and I pray that you would especially work in the hearts of those who might be listening to this who this morning may have come to some recognition that they are dead spiritually. Lord, may they turn their eyes to Jesus in faith, turning away from their sin, and I pray that you would make them alive in Christ. We pray for this work in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark, and if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.